0: Beauty really is transformative. To be struck by beauty is something very powerful. I think that beauty is what moves us, is one of the few things that can change the human heart. And so one of the reasons why I love community murals is because they are concretely signs of beauty like all of those elements are present. So it's the political, it's the religious, it's the social, it's community, you know, all of this is happening at once. And so I think it's very powerful that um, this is how the community chose to, to identify themselves and to liberate themselves by creating beauty, by creating art.
1: You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host Tim Burnett and my conversation today is with Dr. Lauren Frances Guerra. Dr. Guerra earned her doctorate in systematic and philosophical theology from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. She's currently serving as a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University. In this episode, Dr. Guerra and I discuss how she approaches the theological task with the complexities of race, class, and gender in mind. We also dialogue about the deliberative elements of storytelling as truth-telling, how her emphasis on theological aesthetics helps her connect beauty and justice through community-based art, and how her Catholic and Latinx heritage informs her work as a professor and theologian. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Why don't we just start off by, I mean, you want to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and um, what you're up to these days.
0: Yeah, absolutely, so my name is Dr. Guerra. I am a professor at Loyola Marymount University and I'm an LMU alum, so it's been really wonderful to be back at my alma mater in my home department, so it's been really wonderful. Um, I'm from Los Angeles and my background is Guatemalan, Ecuadorian. I'm really excited with the recent canonization of uh, Oscar Romero. I think it was a really significant moment for a lot of Central Americans, specifically, and for the church at large. And so, yeah, I'm a professor and... I'm working on a couple of different pro- projects specifically having to do with pneumatology and theological aesthetics. So I'm working on those different things right now. And I, I work in theology primarily, but I also do some work in ethnic studies, Latinx studies as well. So definitely I'm in conversation with critical race theory and those type of projects as well. Yeah.
1: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That sounds like you're up to a lot of beautiful work. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. So so then give us a little bit of a, a snapshot of what drew you to the task of theology. I mean, what, what was it in your own lived experience and your story that brought you to the place, you know, to say, well, I think I'm going to go for the, the PhD and become a theologian?
0: Right. So, yeah, I, I was definitely raised Catholic and have gone to Catholic schools the majority of my life. So I went to Immaculate Heart High School in Los Angeles. Shout out to IMAC. Um, so the, um, the new royal, Meghan Markle, is also an alumna of Immaculate Heart. So that was pretty neat to have gone there. And so I always felt supported in terms of my theological questions. I always felt very uh, supported and safe in terms of like my teachers encouraging me to ask difficult questions, to ask different theological questions. And so when I started Loyola Marymount, In fall of 2000, I was definitely in a mode of exploring my faith and trying to understand my faith better and I was blessed in the sense that my sophomore year I had a really important professor who became a mentor to me who encouraged me to pursue the PhD because she saw that I had a passion for it and that I was very good at theology and it kind of began there you know um, I really found that theology helped bridge these different passions of mine. I'm very passionate about Latin American culture and being Latina, as well as social justice concerns. And theology really became an amazing place to be able to have those conversations. I'm really active with the Academy of Catholic Hispanic Theologians in the United States, which is a group that meets every June. And uh, that's also been a really amazing group to explore different theological questions as well as address issues of race, class, and gender. So it's, it's been good. It's definitely been a journey. Um, I finished my PhD in May of 2016. So the journey since graduation has been quite intense with its ups and downs. But I'm really happy to be back in Los Angeles and at LMU.
1: Yeah, that's, that's that's wonderful. I mean, so yeah. cool to come full circle like that.
0: It is. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So then as as you think about these factors that, you know, from your own journey that that came into play to to call you to the task of of theology, um I'm hearing this this resonance of there's there's sort of this cultural element, there's a race and gender element and a class element. Um and so obviously rooted in in the stream of doing latinx theology with an emphasis on theological aesthetics and chicano or chicano studies uh, has brought you to this place where you are able to bring your um i would imagine that you're able to bring your full self to the task right
0: right um,
1: and, and on this podcast we often talk a lot about the body as location for doing mm-hmm. theology as mm-hmm. well as aesthetics and experience as factors in the task of theology so So as you consider what you're up to in working for for Collective Liberation, um, how has, you know, your cultural heritage um, brought you to this place where you are able to engage, um, you know, out of your own story?
0: Right. So my family history definitely plays a big role in terms of how I understand my culture and who I am. So my family has always encouraged me to be proud of being Latina and to, you know, while I know that speaking Spanish can be a... um, it's a, it's a sensitive subject right so for a lot of people speaking Spanish is a very sensitive subject because some families in order to assimilate better they did not want to teach their children Spanish and I fully like appreciate and understand that yeah. so in, in my in my case in my situation, I grew up very close to my mom's side of the family and so I spoke Spanish. Growing up, you know, I'm very much like a fully bilingual person. And so my mother grew up here in Los Angeles, but my grandparents on my mother's side are from Guatemala, from Guatemala City. And then on my father's side, my dad is Ecuadorian. He's from Guayaquil and he actually immigrated to Los Angeles When he was about 19 or 20 years old, he met my mom here in L.A., and the rest is history. (laughs) So they met here in Los Angeles and got married and had me and had my brother. So, yeah, you know, I've always been very proud of my cultural heritage. And um, growing up in Los Angeles, one of the things that always fascinated me was this question of popular religion. You know, things like devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, devotion in terms of celebrating Day of the Dead or Dia de los Muertos. yeah and in, in my initial work, I've done a lot of research around community murals and that's been very exciting because I'm able to speak not only theologically, but also in terms of the role of community murals in Chicano studies, which has always been an important, they've always played an important role in that sense. Hmm. And um, yeah, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of a little bit of how I see those pieces intertwining. And, you know, of course, like the, the sense of social justice has always been present, rooted in faith. Right. And, uh, you know, just like currently, I think with our political climate, it's become very apparent that we have a lot of work to do, uh, especially in terms of immigration. You know, it's it's unreal to me that there are still children who are separated from their families. They're in cages. You know, there's yes. children in cages right now. It's yeah. horrific. I don't understand how this is happening. Hmm. And, you know, on a personal level, like the majority of those families are Guatemalan and Ecuador, uh, pardon, they're Guatemalan and El Salvadorian. You know, they're primarily from Central America. Central America has seen a lot of violence and a lot of um, military oppression. There's been U.S. involvement in those areas, as we know, um, historically. And so it's, it's very painful. It's very painful to see this unfold, um, on you know it's it's just compounded by my own personal um, experience. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, I mean, I yeah, I'm, I'm with you in the disbelief uh, in, at the state of things uh, today, especially down at the border. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious. You know, uh, in your own work with sort of feminist critical theory from a Latinx perspective. Uh, how, how do you, you talk about in in one article that I read that you wrote about how storytelling is an important way to begin to not only document your lived experience, but, but in, in, and through sharing them, there's a, there's a kind of liberation, uh, that can come. And in even your naming just now of the realities at the border, there, there's a liberative element. Um, so could you reflect for a moment on how, uh, storytelling and acknowledgement and naming, uh, brings us to a place where we're able to enter into the liberative task.
0: Yes, definitely. I, yeah, you know, storytelling is a really important process and it is a liberative process because in sharing our stories, we are able to understand one another better. Um, recently, mm. Natalia Impera. Dory Lee, who is uh, at Manhattan College, she wrote a book called "Cuéntame." So again, this sense of like, tell me, mm. tell me about yourself, tell me your story, tell me what's happened, right? Yeah. And it is really important, you know. I uh, in the classroom, I do try to share my stories with my students, you know, to to help them understand me better and to in encourage them to also be vulnerable and to share their stories. And I've had some really wonderful, beautiful moments this semester with students being very honest with their struggles, with their pain, with um, whatever they've been through. And that's through story, you know, cause each it's true. Every human being has a story to tell and we never fully know what people have been through until they share it with us. And so documenting that has been so important. And as far as theology goes, As we know, because of lack of access to education, so much of theological writing has been very Eurocentric, male-dominated, et cetera, et cetera. And so the fact that now, finally, you know, finally we have womanist theologians, we have Latina feminist theologians, Asian American theologians, you know, it's important. It's so important to hear different theological perspectives and different lived experiences from those communities.
1: Yes, Yeah. And I mean, I wanted to read just for a moment, one of the things that you wrote in in that article was this statement. What is needed urgently is an engagement with these stories in order to begin dismantling oppressive structures for the sake of liberation. And so I'm curious, as, as we engage these stories that begin to to stew that liberative element within us that we need societally. And as you think about story or the role that story plays in the larger dismantling of the systems that are so big and vast and comprehensive that um, I'm just curious for you, like what the direct connection is between story and this dismantling of the oppressive structure, but also after speaking up and naming and telling the story, is there a trajectory that is set in terms of addressing the larger structures uh, and powers?
0: Sure, yeah. Sh- sharing stories very much is about telling the truth, right? Sharing right. and expressing our truth and expressing what has happened. So especially right now in the era of fake news, right, where everything is being questioned, like what is true, what is not true, it's especially important for people to document and share their stories. It's one of the, um, in a lot of ways, it's one of the blessings of social media is that people are able to record you know record what's happening to take pictures of what's happening and share them without any um intervention and now of course it has its pros and cons
1: yeah but you
0: know um in terms of like allowing the public to document you know what's happening i think is very important um yeah so I, i would say that that's one part of it is by sharing stories it's truth telling it really is speaking truth to power ultimately
1: right And then what trajectory is set after speaking that truth? I mean, is there any, in your mind, like how, how as a culture, do we not only address these stories, but work together to systemically dismantle the the power that is continuing to marginalize?
0: Right. So I think one of the things that we're seeing or we're witnessing now, like, for example, with the Me Too movement, is that we can no longer conduct business as usual, right? Like we've reached a point yeah that things have to change like things absolutely need to change. We're seeing it with the me too movement. we're seeing it with the black lives matter matter movement. um things cannot continue this way. you know um we cannot continue to ignore these huge systemic problems and issues, and so by speaking out, I think it's to raise awareness, to raise a level of awareness to the public.
1: Right. Right. And then, and then the work of the public is to somehow continue, you know, systemically, not only truth-telling, but, but uh, working for the, the reformation of the power structures that are behind the oppression. That's you right. Know. That's right. And, and so I guess I'm, I'm just curious, as, as we root ourselves as, as people who are, are doing some kind of theopoetic task, and narrative and story plays a central role in truth-telling, um you know in your mind is there work to be done on the other side of that naming um how how would you name the task of of liberation uh what what's the is there a central impetus or thrust there for you
0: right so i would say that there is a lot of power in the grassroots right there's a lot of power in grassroots movements in terms of creating a sense of social change in the in the fight for liberation. So, you know, truly someone like now saint, it's exciting to say that St. Oscar Romero.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Know, in
0: his life, you know, like in his own life, he was transformed, you know, he was transformed by witnessing the violence and poverty that was around him in El Salvador. And he begged for change. You know, he, he understood that things could not continue as they were. And, you know, unfortunately he paid for it with his life. You know, he was killed in cold blood for speaking up. Right. I mean, that's truly what happened to him. And, you know, there is a risk, of course, like there's always a risk, but we have to take that risk.
1: Hmm. I mean, it sounds, stri- obviously, I'm not surprised either that that he was given, um, you know, sainthood because it sounds so similar to Jesus, you know, right,
0: right, um, right. in
1: his work. And I know that for you as a Catholic uh, and, and working obviously at LMU, there there's a centrality there. Um, on on Jesus that probably in some way uh, informs your, your task. So, so for absolutely. you as a, as a Catholic, tell me more about your, your faith tradition and how that roots you um, in the liberative work that you do.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, that is absolutely central, you know, my faith in God, my faith in Jesus is central to the work that I do. And, you know, it's, it's so actually, it's so simple, right? In the gospel, Jesus tells us exactly to feed the poor, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned. You know, like these are hmm. direct commands of what we should be doing as Christians, as Catholics, etc. is to do something, you know, not to just sit back and watch yeah. things fall apart, you know, and we have to remember that Jesus was you know, living in a time of oppression. He was living in a time of empire, you know, much like our own. And so these are really important things to, to remember, you know, that, um, it's not easy, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to follow this commandment of love, loving one another, to live with compassion. It's not easy, especially to feel love towards those who are difficult or, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to love our, to love our friends, you know, it's really easy yeah. to love our friends and family, but what about the other, you know, like what about those who are different than us? Um, it's much more difficult, you know, and, and again, that was the whole point. Love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everybody, you know, like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole thing. You It's know? not and, a metaphor. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah,
1: right, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, Given given that reality, I think we're living at a time when uh, the inheritance of this sort of Western patriarchal form of Christendom mm-hmm. that that has moved you know throughout especially America right. has has with it certain power dynamics uh, that are interpretive, right? I mean the the way that we the way that we read the Bible, the way that we might take some of those words of Jesus and, and and try to to learn, you know, from them. And so, I guess I'm just curious, uh, you know, at, from your Catholic and feminist perspective, what are some of the voices that have inspired you to, to really root yourself in, in the way of Jesus in such a way that um, that you pay attention to those those commands that that he gives that are not metaphors. And and uh, you know, just I'm I'm just curious for you, like as you bring your your sort of feminist critical theory to bear on your faith? Like, right. how, how does that help you to see the way of Christ in a, in a different light?
0: Right, right. So, in terms of, I mean, you know, as a as a book nerd, as an academic, I have to go with scholars, you know, I have to yeah. go with academics as well. So, someone like Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, she's uh, amazing, you know, not only poet, but theologian, and she had to speak up for herself, you know, and she's sort of a, an a proto-feminist in the Americas. So she her work has been very inspirational to me. The work of someone like Jürgen Moltmann is very inspirational to me. I love his mm-hmm. work. Um, he's very Trinitarian in his construction. So I appreciate that very much. Of course, like the Latin American liberation theologians like Gustavo Gutierrez, John Sobrino have been very important to me. Yeah. Um, and then more, you know, contemporary theologians in U.S. Latino theology, people like Orlando Spine, Carmen Nanco Fernandez, Maria Pilar Aquino, um, Cecilia Gonzalez, Andrew, the list goes on. I mean, these are yeah. these are people that I have been very blessed to I've been very blessed to meet them and know them, many of them personally, and they've been incredible mentors. And I I look up to them a lot because they are not afraid to speak up, you know, and I think it's so it's so critical at this time.
1: Oh absolutely. So given that that beautiful stream of thinkers and and uh, activists and authors that you just named, um for you like how does the theological location of of liberation mm-hmm. contrast with some of the other theological um Traditions, you know, like I'm thinking and I mean, I'm curious too, especially as a liberation theologian who also calls uh, yourself a systematic theologian, you know, like, like what flavor what what essence is there in in liberation that um, that continues to catalyze you uh, and, and in contrast to the other sort of schools of thought that are prevalent in theology.
0: Right. So yes, I am, you know, trained as a systematic theologian. And, you know, it's funny, like early on in my studies, I realized like, huh, you know, we talk about Trinity. We talk that, you know, Christianity is a Trinitarian tradition. And yet we, as far as, you know, Catholics go, I, I saw kind of an absence of discussion around the Holy Spirit right and mm-hmm. so that was it you know many of these things begin with a question right we they they begin with a as we would say in spanish una inquietud right something that mm-hmm. kind of concerns us or bothers us okay and so as i reflect back on the tradition i you know began to realize that the spirit is really the breath of life and the power for change Right, yeah. and so that's one of the things that you know, as far as systematics goes, I love pneumatology because it is really opening up possibilities. You know, the spirit of creation, the spirit of change, and uh, we never know what the Holy Spirit is doing exactly. You know, there's a lot of yes. <laughs> there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty, which is refreshing. You know, I think it's important to leave that room open and to, you know, to ultimately recognize like God is mystery. Like we, the minute, and this, I think is a very wise thing. Uh, I want to say Orlando Spain had said this one time at a conference. He said, you know, the minute that we think we have God figured out, we have it wrong. You know, like the minute that we assume we have it all figured out, we're probably wrong, you know? So yeah, yeah, you know, that's uh, one of the things that I really love is pneumatology and thinking about Trinity and thinking about pneumatology in a Catholic context.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um hmm. is there is there any particular role that spirit plays um in your own cultural heritage that uh that that sort of brings to life that element that you're so passionate about?
0: Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, you know, I think just the sense of the the spirit as a source of peace and connecting the spirit to beauty. In my writing, I do try to make that connection between spirit and beauty and how really beauty is a sign of the Holy Spirit, right? So we see the spirit working through works of beauty. And that's why, you know, that's why the aesthetic – for me, that's why the aesthetic is so important, so poetry um paintings uh dramatic presentations, et cetera all of this is really important, and we can see a lot of times we can see the spirit working in those moments
1: absolutely yeah i mean and and when it in terms of poetics, like I'm always. You know, it, when you read a poem, there there is a way that the language and the structure and the form uh, engages you that right. calls something forth out of you, right. rather right. than trying to you know uh, directly or propositionally you know announce something to you. Right. There, there's an element there that that you know seems transformative in in, in right. just the form of poetry, and so I love that connection between spirit and and the poetic. Um, And, I mean, maybe for a moment, could you reflect a little bit more on on beauty or on theological aesthetics or even as it pertains to your your passion um, in in cultural murals? Like, what what for you in in the aesthetic element of theology is so alluring?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, beauty really is transformative. You know, it is – to be struck by beauty is something – very powerful. I think that beauty, beauty is what moves us, right? I think Mm, beauty is one of the few is one of the few things that can change the human heart, you know? And so one of the reasons why I love community murals is because they are concretely signs of beauty. And I would argue that are signs of the Holy spirit at work. So initially my uh, initial research was on, the community murals in chicano park down in san diego Hmm. and so that park was built by the community in response to the city of san diego and caltrans destroying the community you know that freeway was built right in the heart of barrio logan and the local community and local artists got together and basically had to go fight city hall for the park space below, you know, and so the story, just the whole, again, talking about storytelling, the story of Mario Logan and the story of Chicago park is very important and very powerful. And what I noticed in going there, you know, over the years and at different times is that the content of the murals is so powerful. You have like Mesoamerican serpents, Aztec warriors, hmm. paint, you know, artists like painters, like images of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, who are so important, you know, uh, the Mexican muralists, etc. cetera, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers. Um, hmm. You know, uh, it's, It's all there, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe, like all of those elements are present. So it's the political, it's the religious, it's the social, it's community, you know, all of this is happening at once. And so I think it's very powerful that um, this is how the community chose to, to identify themselves and to liberate themselves by creating beauty, by creating art.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love that imagery, too. I remember also in that article that you, that you had sent me that you had written uh, about the connection uh, between Latinx theologians and this idea of daily life as a sort yes. of lo- locus for, um, for experience of, of the divine. And yes. um, this, it's like almost like in the mundaneness of, absolutely. of our communal realities, we encounter God. So uh, absolutely. I, I just love that connection because a lot of the imagery that you just drew upon is this sort of beautiful aesthetic tapestry of communal life Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. and and that, that I just wonder if there, that there's this sort of rendering of, of that imagery or those pictures that are, that are on the mural that, that roots people in not only the togetherness of the community, but also the divine web of connectivity there.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, right. So initially this park was built by the community and now, of course, right? Typical. So many decades later, it's considered a historical site by the city of San Diego right now, you know, like after the fact it's become this national treasure, historical site, blah, 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 you know, which is great. That's wonderful. But again, like it's very similar to Oscar Romero. He was considered a saint by the people of El Salvador decades ago, you yeah, know, and they yeah. did not need, they did not need the Vatican to verify that. They believed that he was a saint so long ago, you know, for all of his work and for the life that he lived. Right. And so now, right now, the church at large, now the Vatican, now the world can affirm this, right? And so it's, it's fascinating how that happens. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh it's, it's also beautiful to see the wider recognition as well, but, right, but right. yeah, it's, I'm not surprised that, that institutional religion is a little bit behind the the curve, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure Jesus, you know, could attest to as well. <laughs> right, right. Uh But wow. Uh, So so then as you tell this this story, um, this theological narrative and the narrative of of God through through the lens of of your own work. One of the things that you also mentioned was that in your own Latinx culture, there's this um, cultural significance of these two images. And it was La Virgen and uh, La Melinche. Is that how you pronounce it? So, could you talk about you know the the those two images and how they sort of juxtapose in your your own culture to um, to actually you know create some some sort of harmful um, stereotypes and identities for women to have to to enter into and and could you just give us that that imagery? I don't want to tell the whole story, but
0: right. So the the imagery of Guadalupe and La Malinche.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, Guadalupe, well, she's, she's many things. She's many, many things um, to many people, but you know, she really is a powerful symbol of popular religion. She is often considered a Marian apparition. Um, Orlando Spin has written and considered her as a pneumatological event, which is very powerful. Um, But she appeared in 1531 in December, 1531 to uh, Juan Diego on the hill of hills of Tepeyac in Mexico. Mm. And, uh, you know, she, uh, she's been a very powerful symbol of solidarity with not only with the Mexican people, but with Latinos in general. You know, her mestiza self being, you know, she appeared as a mestiza woman. And that's something that the people of latin america can very much identify with because of the history of latin america um and uh, as far as la malinche yeah she's kind of um a mythical figure she's sort of a scorned woman and so you know she the two images really do parallel this sense of um eve and mary right like Mary's saintliness and holiness versus Eve as like the whore or the prostitute, you know, the sinful woman, mm. they kind of function in that way. A lot of times in, um, in Mexican culture in particular.
1: Wow. And so, uh, so then from your own liberative feminist perspective, you named that, that that's those, those identity markers are actually a part of the larger patriarchal system that was in play, right? it is, is still in play. Um, and so, for you, how how does naming those those two images um, of those figures in, in your culture sort of invite uh, critical reflection on the systems that are functioning, and how does it call us to some identity or gender identity beyond that?
0: Right. And so I would say, you know, Guadalupe in particular, uh, there's, okay, I will say this. Particularly in Chicano studies and Latinx studies, many Latina feminists, many Chicano feminists have problematized Guadalupe and the way that she's presented as this super holy figure, Um, you know. And instead, they have pointed back to her indigenous heritage and her presence as the goddess Tonantzin right so um it's kind of Mm -hmm. like this dual it's a very complicated like dual image and so what a lot of chicana feminists have done is reclaimed the unseen for her power for her beauty um that she's more of a fierce like warrior type you know and so that's something very empowering for a lot of um, chicana scholars and yeah no and it's, it's trying to just problematize as you said like this image of Guadalupe as submissive, as you know, very weak or mild. You know that's that's a problem, and so that's sort of um, as far as Chicano says goes. That's how people have responded.
1: Hmm. And in in naming that that women uh, of Latinx descent have have been pressured to conform to either one of those Im- images of La Virgen right. or La, La Malinche, like uh, you named that that they're. Is a sort of patriarchal power dynamic that is forcing women into those roles. Right. Um and you taught and you talked about how there, there's this opportunity in 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 sort of recognizing that and telling that story for us right. to move into a space where um where where genders aren't so um binaried.
0: Right, and, right. And, Yeah, 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 definitely. And so, you know, like, so for example, um, another person who's written quite a bit on Guadalupe is Jeanette Rodriguez. She wrote on Our Lady Guadalupe as a symbol of empowerment for Mexican-American women. There's been a lot, you know, there's been a lot of different scholars who have touched upon this question, the symbol of Guadalupe. What does she mean? What does she really symbolize? There's tons. I mean, like so many people have written about Guadalupe because she's so influential you know she's probably she's probably the most easily recognizable symbol of popular religion yeah She's everywhere You know, she's on tattoos yeah. She's yeah. on t-shirts Right She's on earrings I mean, people have her on her car Like, on you know, like painted on their car She's everywhere, you know Like, she's on rosaries Like, she's literally everywhere And so, she's yeah. on murals all the time You know, on, on different walls in different cities She's everywhere So, it, she is really significant for a lot of people And for, for a variety of reasons You know, she's read I will say this She's read in a variety of different ways
1: Hmm Wow! Yeah. So there's there's more of a pluriform sort of association. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Definitely. Wow! Wow. Beautiful. So, I'm curious um, because in in part my my own interest in theology is uh, is a bit biased toward beauty mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and toward aesthetics, and so uh, maybe just diving in a little bit deeper into that for a moment would like if how do you parse out your own philosophy of beauty like when you think about it in your larger system of theology like how like is there uh is there a sort of like um cosmological reality there that's going on is it is there a sort of aesthetic cultural reality like how where does beauty fit in your your larger system of thought theologically
0: right yeah, you know, so one of the most um, important and influential things that I've ever read was from Sir Juana Ines La Cruz. She writes about um, Narcissus, right? So mm-hmm. El Divino Narciso. And what she does is that instead of Narcissus falling in love with himself, as the myth goes, it's Narcissus is actually Jesus. And Mm. Jesus ends up falling in love or sacrificing for two characters. The the image of two characters, you know, Narcissus is looking into the water and sees an image, right? And so behind him, it's the two characters. One is grace and one is human nature. So uh, basically Narcissus Jesus falls in love with grace and human nature and thus sacrifices himself. It's beautiful. Mm. It's an incredible, Mm. really powerful image. I mean, she's an amazing... Theologian and poet, of course. And so, yeah, you know, that's, that's what's so complicated about Christianity is so complicated about beauty. You know, someone like James Cone talks about the ugliness of the cross. Right. And he's absolutely, you know, rest in peace, James Cone. You know, uh, he talks about the ugliness, ugliness of the cross. You know, it's not, it's not a pleasant image, you know, it's an image of capital punishment, actually, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, And so it's, it gets complicated. It it really does get complicated. Like, how do we, how do we kind of navigate and glorify this symbol without, you know, kind of glorifying evil or, you know, killing, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it can be very difficult. It can be very complicated.
1: Yeah. So how do you do that?
0: Oh my goodness um, yeah, you know it's it's yeah. it's tough, like it's tough, I think so, and like okay, and thinking about art and thinking about beauty, one of the things that people always comment on, and I agree is that if you notice crosses in Latin America are not just crosses, they're always a crucifix, right you know, ninety percent of the time it's a crucifix, so the body is there, and that's very important, right mm-hmm. so this this bloody, beaten body of Jesus is present. And, you know, the way that I try to, to understand it, at least theologically, is I think that when people look at this body, they look at a God who understands them. They look at a God who has experienced suffering and pain too, you know yes, and so yes. that's i think that's really what is happening there is like you know god understands me in my suffering god understands me as i'm trying to you know protect my family and you know flee from violence etc like this is a god who has suffered too hmm. you know and then of course you know i'm thinking about you know, atonement and theodicy, of course, like it always gets, (laughs) it always gets more interesting in how we navigate that. But, you know, just on a, just very simply that God understands, you know, God understands suffering.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, in my theological stream, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, Alfred North Whitehead Mm -hmm. calls God, the fellow sufferer who understands. There
0: you go. go. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Just that, that statement of, of withness, which is, you know, uh, often attributed to the pneumatological spirit that you mentioned earlier too. Right. So there's, you know, it's it's, always, it's such a fascinating image. I love the connection that you drew there between the crucifix and the cross. You know, and and how that that beaten, bloodied body right. uh, of the crucified um, Nazarene, you know, in that image just sort of calls forth. Um, this this really visceral experience of yes. abandonment, you yes. know, and and how even you know in when he names that sort of in quoting the psalm saying you know my god my god why have you forsaken me That's there right. there's a there's a real uh, experience of suffering there that yep. that much of our religion has tried to stamp out yeah um, and so thank you for bringing that to to attention I mean so how do you reconcile you know that that you know sort of acknowledgement of this this suffering that the system creates and this this craving and embrace of beauty you know
0: right and right.
1: and you know like is how do you
0: weave that together yeah you know it's it is one of the complexities of the christian tradition but you know if you think about the whole of the tradition or you think about holy week you know you think about holy week it's good friday all the way through to the to easter you know what i mean like so it's it's not just the suffering if the story ended there it would be terrible you know like it's yeah (laughs) yeah you know it's it's both and you know if the story ended on good friday it would be terrible and if we were kind of like pollyanna ish or like overly optimistic and just like obsessed about easter it wouldn't take into account the real suffering and trauma that people go through you know, so it's the whole for me. Like that's the only way I can reconcile it, is the whole package. You know, like it's the whole narrative, it's the whole story together.
1: Yes, yes, you can't get to Sunday without Friday.
0: There you go. That's right. right.
1: And I and I just love. I mean, I love that image just to hold it up for a moment as an invitation to the whole of life, to right. the full right. spectrum of human experience, right? Um, that, that includes this this joy and this ecstasy as well as this. Mm-hmm deep experience of pain and abandonment and suffering and yeah and uh that that they're sort of held together in Christ right. you know and right this sort of exactly. pa- pascal mystery there um yeah
0: exactly it's hope you know like it's it's ultimately about hope hope that things can change hope that things can improve like that's that's what it is yeah
1: yeah so it's not i mean i don't know how you parse out your own eschatological views you know but like how do you think of hope uh because some people you know think like if you go you know, that there's some kind of final eschatological victory, then there's like this hope in the future that's to come, you know, but but for for many theologians, I know that there's an emphasis on the lived hope of our reality mm-hmm. now, of this liberative element that's always a part of our our ethos, you know. So for you, like what do you do with hope? Like how do you how do you root yourself right. as a
0: theologian in hope? Right, right. So I I believe that uh, you know the kingdom of God is initiated, right? So I, yeah, I yeah. have to believe that it's sort of a sense of like already, but not yet. Mm-hmm. You know, some things are already in, in play. I think that this is the thing too. I was talking with my students the other day, you know, human beings are very powerful. We have so much capacity, not only for good, but for evil, of course, right? So much of it, so much of this is also in our hands, you know? And so- yeah. I think that it's true. I think that God gives us quite a bit of responsibility and we have to choose wisely. You know, it's, um, sure. It's a whole pesky problem of free will. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, yeah, exactly. So I think that we have a lot of capacity to create social change to create, you know, some, some semblance of the kingdom of God here on earth. I think that's possible, you know, working towards peace, working towards, Mm more like love and compassion in the world is a great thing you know i think um yeah that's kind of how i wrap my mind around it
1: Hmm. so what i'm hearing in in that articulation there is that there's a there's a catalytic element right um, to to this kingdom that is already now that's begun and is in process and so for you part of that seems like there's a creaturely response to that prompting that is is necessary in part to to bring it about That's right. Right. So it's not just the activity of God, right? Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Our, you know, yeah. In a lot of ways, like our, our hands are not that tied. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, there's we actually have quite a bit of freedom and choice in the matter. Um, And I think God has given us that or allowed us that entrusted us. I would even say has entrusted us with that sense of responsibility. Um, When we think about stewardship, you know, that's our responsibility.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, yeah, there's, there's so many elements we could, you know, we could dive into as to yeah, how yeah. our human responsibility is, is failing, you know, right, like we're, right, right. <laughs> we're not taking up the mantle there. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, so, so then as I think about, you know, that, that, um, that thread that you have just described, there's this participatory element um, and I think about you know the task of theopoetics, and how you know it's easy for that word I think to sound um, theoretical, right, right. Or, or ethereal. Right. But there's something deeply human, deeply hopeful, deeply embodied about like living into a theopoetics. Uh, it would you, I mean, I know that we could probably make really nerdy distinctions between theological aesthetics and theopoetics if we really wanted to parse it out, you know, (laughs) but for you, what does theopoetics mean? Like, how do you think about that? Hmm. Or if you'd rather go with theological aesthetics, you you're very welcome to. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, Right. So, I mean, I, I'm very much, you know, in my heart, I do adore aesthetics and just a sense that, you know, beauty does not function without truth and goodness, you know, like that truth and goodness are part of the process. Yeah. You know? um, and so all of that goes together and it's true. I think someone like Rubem Alves, you know, just a sense that beauty is actually very practical in a lot mm. of funny ways. You know, like there's something very concrete, um, that there's concrete action involved. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I'm with you. I, again, as, as somebody who has, you know, has been studying, uh, beauty as well. in in my own work, um, it, it's becoming more and more apparent to me that, that the sort of distinction of, um, of beauty, having a sense of primacy, mm-hmm. you know, in, mm-hmm. in our lived reality and in our invitation to, a sort of participatory life of faith, you know, is right. so catalyzing and so um, so necessary in such a a time that's so ugly, you right. know.
0: Right, right, um, exactly. We live
1: in 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 this sort of space where God. I mean, we don't, we don't even have to name the atrocities that are oh, happening no. in the yeah. country, but like the rhetoric and the and the the inhumaneness that's of right. our society. Like we we're desperate for beauty. You that's know? right.
0: That's um, right yeah yeah you know, and that's been those have been some of the pow- the most powerful responses to the ugliness is to create beauty, you know like people are are it it seems as though people are really creating more art, trying to you know play more music, trying to just make some something better by creating a little bit of beauty, even you know simple things, small things like it it makes all the difference.
1: Yes, that's so good. I mean, we're we're. I'm sensing the same thing. We, we're as a community or as a society needing to make space for people. right, 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 um, exactly. And yeah, we just. I think we're losing our our sense of humanity. You know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Our, our not only that, but our. Our sense of civilization, you know, that's, right. And, that's its, right, and its products, you know.
0: Yeah, this is it's it's crazy. Um, it is, it is really crazy how things are. Yeah, it, it feels as though things are unraveling, you know what I mean? Like it's it's unreal, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and there's yeah. a whole history to that, you know, that has set the table for us to be where we're at, but right, we, we need people who are resisting, you know, and are actually. Right not just resisting, but being proactive about an alternative way of, of living and being that, that cultivates beauty, that, you know, that speaks truth to power, that names injustice and, and calls us to something higher, you know, mm-hmm.
0: Like, mm-hmm.
1: Um, be <laughs> like, Be better. Yeah, right?
0: Like <laughs> be better. It's so simple, right? Like yeah. to just be better people, be better human beings, <laughs> be each other. well. Like how crazy is that? Yeah. You know?
1: You'd think it would be simple, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You'd think. I was talking with a friend, you know, um, uh, gosh, probably over the the summer. And he was just talking about, like, why can't we even just agree that we want uh, something better for our children? Like, couldn't all people just want the next generation to have a, a, a sustainable and better life? Right. Like what if we prioritize that? And I and I responded just by saying, like, hey, I love that. I think there's actually a, a common thread there. But like the problem is not everybody wants all children to flourish.
0: Right. Do right. you
1: know what right. I mean? Right. Yeah. And and so we're not at a place in our society where there's a even a common acknowledgement that all children need the ability Deserve.
0: to serve. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, we're seeing that a at the shelter, border. education, et cetera. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. We're seeing it at the border. Yeah. We're seeing it in communities of color in our country. It's, it's just, I mean, it's our history too, you know, but, yeah. but, uh, God, I, I just wish we could get to that place. Yep.
0: You know? Something so simple. Yeah. That's true.
1: Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, how we're, we're kind of coming to a close here uh, in the next couple, few minutes, but, uh, how can we keep up with your work in the world? How can we stay tuned in to, the, the life and writings of Dr.
0: Garrett. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, so I am working on a few different articles. I do want to, you know, get my first manuscript underway and published soon. So, you know, for now, I think just following me on social media, I definitely have, you know, a pretty good social media presence. If you follow me on Instagram, my Instagram is Dr. Lauren Garrett. I'm also on Twitter at Lauren underscore G18. Um, yeah, you can follow me on social media and see what I'm up to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I will encourage everybody who listens to do that. And I just wanted to, you know, take a moment to say thank you, Dr. Gara, for, thank you. for not only carving out this time in your busy schedule as an educator, but also for sharing your wisdom and your perspective. And I really believe that that the beauty that you are trying to bring out is liberative and, and uh, necessary in our time. So thanks for thank doing you. what you do.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: You're very welcome. Have a
0: great one. Take care. Yeah,
1: you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics podcast. You can find out more about Dr. Guerra's work by following her on Twitter at at Lauren underscore G18 or on Instagram at at Dr.LaurenGara. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at, at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at, at TDBurnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.